this truck circles around campus with our faces and names on it. After many students were attacked with chemical weapons, I'm like, students were already hospitalized. Like, what will it take for Columbia to do something? Will it take one of us getting killed? Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. everyone. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here for another very exciting, informative episode. That sounds like I'm bragging. I'm just saying our guests are going to be very informative and exciting. Please like the stream to get the word out because we're doing a lot of pushback against a lot of propaganda. Like the stream. Please subscribe by hitting subscribe and then the bell. And if you can be Patreon supporters, please do that. Patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. For $5 a month, you get bonus content. For $1 a month, which is just $12 a year, you just get to make this show happen because not to sound corny, but we really couldn't do the show without your guys' support. So I'm going to introduce the first two guests that we're bringing on. And those two guests are Layla Saliba, who is a Palestinian-American graduate student at Columbia University. She's studying social work with a concentration in policy practice. And Prem Thacker is a politics reporter at The Intercept and is a former reporter at The New Republic. His work has also appeared in The American Prospect, Washington Monthly, CNN Podcasts, and his newsletter, Better World. So welcome to the show, Layla and Prem. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining. Hello, hello. Thank you for having us. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Of course. Layla, we're going to start with you. Tell us what happened to you. Was it not this past Friday, but the Friday before that? And where you were the Friday before. Yeah. So I was at the protest. I was actually one of the students who got sprayed with the skunk. So people may not know that you got sprayed with the skunk. Well, they may if they read the, the yeah. but walk us through it. Like, just tell us you get to the protest and what happens. And it's a Gaza protest, right? Yes. So I'm a student at Columbia University. And so what we were doing is we were protesting for what's called divestment. And so divestment basically means that the tuition, the money that we're spending towards Columbia, we don't want it to go towards military military um, weapons manufacturers. We don't want it to go towards defense contractors, et cetera. So that's why we were protesting. We didn't want our tuition money to be used in that way. And um, a lot of these companies, they support, was it the occupation and the destruction of what's going on to the Palestinian people in Gaza? And um, I went to the march personally, so I've lost family in Gaza. I'm Palestinian-American, and this is something that's really personal for me. Um, I went because I wanted to stand up for the humanitarian rights of the Palestinian people. It's something that's often been ignored or neglected. Being Palestinian these days, like when you're watching the media, it's like you often don't feel human because the way that people um, look at it is like when people... When people see this stuff, they see just like numbers, but they don't see that like we are actual human beings with stories and like family members and people who love us. And that's really why I went. And what happened, it was honestly like, when I think about it, it's still surreal. 
like it sounds almost like something out of a Law and Order episode or something like science fiction. So while we were at the protest, we were all marching. And um, there were these two students and they were being very hostile and very aggressive towards us. And I went and took pictures of them because I was like, something is off here. The way that they were coming up to us and interacting with us, they were they were referring to students as um, terrorists, as Jew killers, especially if you can see right there in the photo. So that's one of my friends. And she was holding up a banner that said, see you Jews for ceasefire. Columbia University for ceasefire. Yes. Right. Columbia University, um, Jews for Ceasefire. She's part of Jewish Voices for Peace. Right. And so she was holding up this banner. And um, these two individuals are being really disrespectful towards her. These two guys. So you're talking about, Brad, can we zoom in there? Yes. The people you're alleging were were responsible is the guy in the red jacket and the guy with the green mm -hmm. hat, which has a Jewish star on it. Yes. By the way. Okay. Okay. Both of these individuals are um, have experience with the... Israeli occupation forces. So what that means is they both have military service. So that's what other people will call and Israel will call the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. But obviously people will call it the Israeli occupation forces for obvious reasons. Okay. Yeah. And so when I was at the protest... Um, oh, sorry, Layla, can I ask you one thing before that? A lot of people are asking why you're wearing a mask. Uh, you yeah. So I'm still dealing with symptoms of the skunk, unfortunately. And I was like, you know what? I'm since I'm in a building with other people, I was like, I don't, I don't want to spread this stuff. And then also too, in New York City, a lot of people are sick right now, so that's why I'm wearing a mask. Okay. Got it. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was very surreal when it happened because um, we were all marching, and then we all smelt this horrible smell. I remember thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, it smells like somebody just died. Like, what is what is going on here? But we couldn't really see it at the time because during the protest, it was snowing like crazy. So it was really hard to determine that there was any kind of like spray or mist going on at first. All we noticed was this horrible smell. And so as the smell continued, we realized that A, they came up and tried to like interact with me. So they came up and tried to, um, what was it? They referred to me as a terrorist, which um, is not a great experience, but unfortunately common being Palestinian right now. So they did that. And then also it was just like, it was really, yeah, it was really challenging because these individuals, they seemed like they they were very uncomfortable being photographed and they wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. The reason why I took pictures is because typically when it comes to a protest on campus, it's usually like the same 10 or 20 people. I tend to recognize them, but I didn't recognize these guys, which is why I took the photos of them. And we didn't realize until a few hours after the protest what exactly had happened. At the time, I thought, oh, maybe it's just like a bad smell, like maybe I stepped on some dog poop. Like I didn't really realize what was going on, but I noticed how horrible I felt afterwards. I was nauseous. Um, my clothes smelled awful. Like to this day, um, my clothes still smell like sewage. And um, we quickly realized we're like, some someone did this to us. Like this was intentional. I was getting calls and texts from my friends out of nowhere being like, oh my gosh, I feel horrible. Oh my gosh, I'm throwing up. Like what is wrong? And it all happened after the protest and we all had this smell. And so 
the reason how we recognize that it was skunk is because skunk is used on Palestinians in the West Bank. And so skunk is um, it's a type of chemical weapon. And skunk, it sticks your hair and your skin and your clothing. The only way you can get it out is a special soap that's only sold to law enforcement. So you cannot go just like buy this stuff on Amazon if or um, like a, the member of the general public, like you cannot get access to this stuff. You have to have a law enforcement or a military background in order to have access to this stuff, which is scary. And then also too is like, Part of how we figured out it wasn't, say, like pepper spray, because I've had pepper spray used on me before. A was just how severe the side effects were and how much the stench stunk, stunk to our clothing. Like people were using all kinds of stuff to try and getting the smell out. Um, we thought maybe it was just a skunk spray from an animal at first. So people were suggesting like tomato juice. We tried tomato juice, vinegar, hydrogen peroxide, all kinds of stuff. And we couldn't get the smell out. And the way that the university acted was pretty negligent, in my opinion, just because it wasn't until our article with The Intercept came out that they even decided to do something. Right. So, Prem, tell us about how you even encountered this story and decided to look into it. Sure. So, I mean, one thing that's notable, and I think Leila has touched on it and probably will talk about further, is just that this was something that the impacted students were not making secret. They were, you know, trying to make as much noise as they could on social media. Um, and of course, one aspect of this broader story is that it just wasn't being written about. To this day, nary that many members of Congress have have really spoken on this. I believe Congressman Jamal Bowman has, um, perhaps a few others, some local officials have as well. But it just wasn't garnering that much attention. Um, and it was something that, you know, by the time I was, I was getting ready for the weekend and stories to work on, I, I was thinking about this over the weekend. Um, and so for a bit of timeline here, this rally had happened on Friday and it was not an acknowledged by the university in any particular way until late Sunday night when the Department of Public, Public Safety sent out a notice and an email um, discussing how they were aware of this troubling incident. They were working with authorities, but it didn't get into too much other specifics. Uh, Monday morning, the, the provost sent an email regarding campus policies, um, such as reminding students not to cause bodily harm. Um, they reiterated protest policies, but in some ways was even more vague than the previous email because it didn't necessarily say this was in response to an incident that had occurred you know, three days prior. And then the first sort of more specific comments the university issued was in response to questions that we sent out to them um, as we were working on the story. Um, and that is when we uh, received the statement that I think um, maybe got some deal of attention is when, in response to questions I had about, you know, the university response to this incident and and about concerns about students such as, you know, Layla feeling unsafe on campus, um, a spokesperson had told us that Friday's event was, quote, unsanctioned and, and violated university policies and procedures which are in place to ensure there's adequate personnel on the ground to keep our community safe. Um, so it kind of just dismissed some of the, you know, basic premises of the question. And victim blame too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is certainly a, uh, one way of reading it. And, it. and it was it was definitely particularly interesting because that was the first real time that the university was speaking to exactly what had happened. So an hour or so after we published, um, the university sent a subsequent email, I believe, through the provost's office, 
um, in much more specific fashion, saying that they were working with authorities to investigate possible hate crime uh, and and saying that the alleged perpetrators were banned. And um, something that, I'm, I'm, again, I'm sure Leila might get into and, and other students have reported is that it's not clear if these students are actually banned. They've been seen on campus. Um, Columbia itself is an open campus. So like to the universities, you know, credit, it is a little difficult to do that. But if a university is to say that individuals are, are banned from campus, you know, you'd expect some form of, of, you know, concrete steps to make that happen. And it's not clear what exactly those steps are at the moment. That's something I'm still looking into personally. And of course, another thorny part about this is that as this investigation is ongoing now, um, and it's hunted off to different authorities, it's still not confirmed that the perpetrators who students believe are the perpetrators are indeed exactly. perpetrators. So it's even harder then to then say, like, is this ban being enforced? Is it not being enforced? Because you don't even know who exactly is banned. So the response thus far has been A, a bit slow, and then B, just, you know, unusual insofar as with an incident like this, regardless of, of who is potentially implicated, it is concerning. And you'd imagine that, especially for students who feel, you know, unsafe, um, traumatized or what have you um, on their own campus, that they'd expect some level of certainty. And that hasn't been provided really up to this point. Yeah. yeah. I just want to show that comment that you received, Prem, when you asked on behalf of the Intercept for a statement. This is how they responded to your question about a hazardous chemical being sprayed. Friday's event was unsanctioned and violated university policies and procedures, which are in place to ensure there is adequate personnel on the ground to keep our community safe. Just imagine if there had been a pro-Israel rally that was spontaneous and didn't have um, official sanction. And then those kids said that they had felt unsafe. Imagine yeah. in a million years, a university saying, well, it was unsanctioned. So there you go. Exactly. Or like, what if an Arab or a Muslim student did this? Yes. Like there are no congressional hearings. Bill Ackman, as much as he's talked about higher education lately, he hasn't said a word. Joe Biden has said nothing. It's really they are trying to sweep this under the rug as much as possible. There hasn't even been a university-wide email sent out or a clarity alert sent out too, which they're supposed to do with all crimes. But like, I've been talking to people about it on campus and telling my professors about it. And like, they don't know what's going on, which is really concerning, especially seeing as over 15 students have had to go to the hospital for medical attention. To that point as well, another aspect of this that I think is important is that, of course, we're, get, we're, we're very lucky to have a lot of first person testimony in this story, uh, of course, Leila included, but everything from exactly what substance they were exposed to, to again, exactly who the perpetrators are, is is something that these students are having to piece together themselves and are, is, is something that both you'd expect both on the university level as well as perhaps on the city level uh, and of course just on a congressional level these are questions that you would naturally want to ask um so for instance if the chemical for example was indeed skunk or some version of it um the israeli newspaper hearts once wrote on this chemical um a few years back that quote skunk is let me pull this up skunk is liable to cause physical harm such as intense nausea, vomiting, and skin rashes, in addition to any injury resulting from the powerful force of the spray. And they also wrote that examinations by police and army medical teams in the past also indicated that the excessive coughing caused by exposure can result in suffocation. So 
on one hand, we already have, you know, these medical reports, this testimony, and, and in fact, you know, a paper trail of these students going to, to different hospitals and, and care centers, exhibiting concerning symptoms. On the other, And uh, concurrently, we have ongoing proof of what a potential chemical like this can cause to people. And these are questions you'd imagine that, you know, anyone with authority would want to jump onto and, and sort of draw a line to say that, you know, no student, no young person, whether they have whether they're Palestinian, Israeli, Arab, Muslim, Jew Jewish, what have you, wherever they are, no young person in this country should be, you know, facing this kind of thing. And it doesn't seem thus far that that standard is being upheld. Um, to your point, of course, you know, imagining the the sort of counterfactuals. And of course, we don't necessarily have to think of counterfactuals because, uh, of course, we're, we're looking back to a previous hearing that was held about um, concerns about anti-Semitism on campus, which, of course, you know, are important. But when we have a clear instance um, like this happening, you'd imagine that there would be at least some level of, of analogous attention. And, and thus far, again, uh, as far as members of Congress, Jamal Bowman, um, I, I might have missed a few other, but not many other members of Congress have said anything about this yet. And yeah. Jewish students were attacked too. It's like if we're, yeah, exactly. we're talking about yes. anti-Semitism yeah. on campus, yeah. multiple Jewish count. students had to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, we don't count if we're not pro-Israel. And Prem, can you put this in the context? Because you have an article that you wrote about the increased crackdown on sit-ins and protests. Can you set this up? Give us the context that you wrote about in your piece? Yeah, absolutely. So the broader the broader context of this is that, um, as we've seen, there have been you know students all over the country at, at different universities and schools and colleges um, sort of protesting um, broadly in support of, of the people in Gaza. Um, they've been protesting against perhaps their university investment policies, um, calling on the universities to divest from um, companies implicated in Israel's occupation um, or the ongoing war in Gaza, um, or if nothing else, just for financial transparency so they know whether the university they attend and pay money to is, is invested in these companies. And so um, a handful of colleges that we looked at um, they have been host to sit-in protests, um, of course, a, a sort of um, marker of the civil rights legacy in this country, um, something that, you know, especially in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr. Day is something that many people have reflected on. Um, but many of these universities have, have really cracked down on that kind of protest um, at, at uh, Brown, at University of Michigan, Amherst, UChicago, and, and others as well. But those were some universities that we focused on in which at these schools, um, of course, they, they had policies in place that, for instance, you know, might um, limit how many students can gather in a place or, or for how long they can do so um, or how loud they can be. Um, but many of these rules were, were not really enforced in the past um, or are being enforced in a way that that seems um, sort of just dramatically at, at a higher degree than, than in previous instances. And of course, one way of thinking about this is, you know, at how many of these schools, a lot of kids get really rowdy after, you know, perhaps a huge football game or, you know, some really exciting sporting event where, you know, kids get maybe a little too crazy um, and maybe even, you know, burn some furniture or whatever. Things that on paper are perhaps and very likely university violations, but probably wouldn't get the sort of response we're seeing here at these universities. So, for instance, at um, Amherst, there was dozens of students that that received um, probation and then received uh, campus discipline, disciplinary, disciplinary hearings and so on, um, to the point that a few students were actually barred from studying abroad. Um, and uh, at, at Michigan, 
Um, there's another sit-in protest where even before the protest had begun, um, dozens of police vehicles had showed up to, to where the protesters were or were, or were going to be. And these officers and, and their vehicles came from a, at least nine different police jurisdictions. Some of these vehicles and officers had riot shields, and this was before the sit-in began. Um, so there's sort of this presumption of, of, of escalation that is implied. And in the same way that, you know, this is not unfamiliar, unfamiliar to a lot of protests that we've seen over the past four years in this country, but particularly with regards to students who, by and large, these are sit-in protests, particularly with regards to this article. But largely speaking, many of these protests, if not all, are, are largely peaceful. They might be disruptive, of course, because that's where it gets into campus policy. And again, things are on paper, perhaps they violate policies, but they might be disruptive, but they're largely peaceful. There's no sort of necessity to think that they, they will require riot shields in response. But at all of these universities, it seems to be just this much more severe response to students who, again, at many of these universities as well, these sit-ins have only come after weeks and weeks of previous protesting. And, and again, many times these demands are, if not for the university to have divest, at least to have a public meeting, to have public transparency about their investments. And so these were escalatory actions. They weren't sort of just inflammatory ways to just, from my perception, just cause a racket for no reason. I think they were in response to That's silence exactly from these what administrators. It is. So at least... Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Like, um, at least at Columbia, it's been so difficult to get in touch with members of the administration. Like we've tried calling, we've tried emailing, they ignore us. They monitor our social media posts, which is bizarre. But um, a lot of information just isn't public. Like when it comes to like, say, the board of trustees. So I went to a state school for undergrad. I went to NC State. And so our board of trustees, because it was a public university, you could figure out when are they going to meet? What are they talking about? You could have their email addresses, all that stuff. And it's like at Columbia, we don't get that transparency. Everything is in the dark. And I think students are really frustrated because they're like, I'm my tuition dollars are going towards a cause that I don't agree with and I can't have any say in it. So it's understandable that students are continuing to escalate. Hmm. Totally understandable. Prem, before you leave, because I know you have a time restraint, anything you want to talk about that you're working on related to Palestine? Because it's just from your Twitter account and also your work at The Intercept, you have even more recent pieces relating to Palestine. Anything you want to preview for us? Yeah, I mean, I would just say I'm still focused on Columbia's response to to what's going on or perhaps lack thereof. Um, so if anyone happens to know anything going on there or happens to work within the university and, and wants to share anything with me, um, you can email me um, or DM me on Twitter for my signal. I surely will, as I always do, protect my sources. Um, that's very important to me. I don't want anyone to face any consequence for, for speaking out. Um, just as well, more broadly, I think this is, you know, as you've seen, especially at The Intercept, this is a broad issue that we are very focused on in terms of repression, um, in terms of also just policymaking. Um, so, of course, I am very concerned with univer the university aspect of this, but also, of course, with with how our administration and government is, is navigating this. So, as always, you know, go to The Intercept to read, but also if you know of any knowledge uh, to please feel free to, to message us. Um, I guess one other aspect, and I think I saw this in the comments, um, I am also focused on East Palestine in Ohio. Um, it is about to be the one year anniversary of, of that awful derailment. Um, and so you can look forward to more coverage on that as well. But generally, 
um, just uh, thank you all for who have who have read us. Um, and please do continue to follow. We're, we're trying our best um, and we'll, we'll keep working hard. And you just uh, wrote a story about how the UAW endorsed Biden despite demanding a ceasefire, which he obviously is avoiding. Indeed. Yes, yes, yes. Um, definitely focused on the labor aspect as well. Um, always concerned with labor broadly, but especially as more and more unions um, and union members continue to call for a ceasefire. That's that's another intersection where we're very interested in. Yeah. And I want to share something. Uh, you don't have to say because I know you have to go. But who did you write this up yourself? This very useful since the ICJ hearing tweet? Yes, that was probably me. Yeah. Let's see. So. Yeah, that's that's me. So <laughs> this is something I think is worth reading because it drives home yeah. what we're talking about. Layla, you know this obviously more than mm-hmm. most people because you've lost family in this um, genocide. But just so people get what's at stake when we're talking about protesting and what people like Layla are protesting and then getting sprayed with hazardous chemicals about. You write, since the International Court of Justice ruled four days ago that Israel is plausibly committing genocide, Israeli forces have reportedly killed 668 Palestinians and injured 1,149. Nancy Pelosi suggests that groups calling for a ceasefire are Russian agents, says FBI should investigate. U.S., Germany, Japan, Canada, France, Switzerland, Netherlands, U.K., Italy, Australia, Austria, Finland, Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Iceland, New Zealand, and Sweden suspend funding to UNRWA, which we talked about in our last episode with Craig McIver, which is an absolute outrage. And if you think you couldn't find 12 members of the IDF who have committed crimes, you're in serious denial. And if you're consistent, you should then call for the defunding of the IDF, okay? Hundreds of settlers host a conference headlined by officials, including National Security Minister Itmar Ben-Gavir, calling for the settlement of Gaza. Israeli forces infiltrate a hospital dressed as medical staff in order to execute three Palestinians in the West Bank, not Gaza. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant says Israel will maintain military control of the Gaza Strip once the conflict is over, giving it freedom to operate similarly to the way it currently does in the West Bank. People in Israel repeatedly block aid trucks from entering Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of people, including the hostages, are at risk of starvation and malnutrition. Israeli forces heighten attacks around multiple hospitals, Palestinians seen being detained blindfolded and left barefoot by Israeli forces in southern Gaza. So that really drives home what is at stake. Prem, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Be well. You too. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. So, Layla, I want to say again that I'm so sorry for what you've gone through, both as a student and also as a Palestinian. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate that. I know that you've lost family members. Is there, would you like to, I have more questions for you about about Colombia, but do you also want to take this opportunity to tell people about your family? Yeah. So, my my family members... um, I lost 14 family members um, in the Gaza church bombing. My family is, um, they're Palestinian Christians. And so I have some family in Gaza. I've got some family in the West Bank, in Jordan. A lot of us are scattered all over the place. And that's kind of typical for Palestinians because once you leave Gaza or the West Bank, you're often not allowed to return. Like my, um, my Baba, like he can't, he can't go back. And like, that's the thing. There's also significant risk with like people like me, like taking, speaking out about the genocide and participating in activism um, for Palestine. The Israeli authorities, oftentimes they ban people who support Palestine, like from going back and visiting their family. Like this is something that's used against us. It's something systematic. 
And yeah, I just really with all of this, it's like I have experienced a lot for being Palestinian American right now. And I know that what I'm dealing with is challenging, but at least, I mean, I have a roof over my head. I don't have to worry about whether or not my apartment is going to be bombed. I don't have to worry about whether or not how I'm going to get through the next day. Like what I am dealing with is a small fraction of what people in Gaza are dealing with. And that's something that I try to be very aware of as much like, because I have gotten a lot of harassment and bullying and intimidation. And a lot of Palestinian students at Columbia have, we've experienced a lot of that. But we know that what we're doing is right. and we're not going to stop speaking up for Palestine and for the liberation of our people. And can you tell us about this alleged participant in the spring, how you know that they were IOF members? Yeah. So that person, they actually indicated it on their LinkedIn. They indicated on their LinkedIn and also in an interview that they did with the news, I directly interacted with him. He went up to me and he called me a terrorist. And I looked at him and I was just like, huh? Like what's, what's, what's going on here? He had his phone with me. It's like, he was very much trying to get a reaction out of me when I was calm towards him. He was upset. And so was his friend. So my, my thinking is that they probably did this with the spray in order to get some type of reaction out of us when people were calm towards them because they kept on coming up to people and like trying to film people, they were upset. And, um, Columbia, hasn't really done anything about this student um, that did this to us. They haven't really done anything about the other student that did this to us. People still see them on campus. People have seen them. And in order to like get into these buildings on campus, you have to have like ID card access. So that means that Columbia, even though they did this to us, they did not turn off their ID card access, which is suspicious. And, um, yeah, it's just been, it's honestly been really traumatizing. Like I'm in grad school. Like this is the, the, when this happened, it was the first week of the semester. Like I haven't even, I haven't even like bought my textbooks for class or anything yet. Like class hadn't even started and this happened. Like it just feels so surreal just talking about it right now. And people, when I say this to people, they're like, oh, you can't, this can't be real. This can't be real. And I'm like, I wish I was making this up y'all. Like it is, it is horrible. And this stuff skunk it's used on Palestinians in the West bank on a regular basis. It's really just horrifying. Like I would not wish this stuff on my worst enemy just because of how horrible it is. If it gets on, um, your clothes, if it gets on your clothes, your sheets, et cetera, it really sticks to any soft surface. You cannot get it off unless you have the soft soap, the special soap that can only be accessed if you're law enforcement. So I've had to throw out a lot of stuff, stuff just because it smells like sewage and I don't have the space to store it. And that's something that Palestinians in the West Bank, they have to deal with on a regular basis. Like if a merchant, if their produce gets sprayed with skunk, by um, someone in the IOF, they have to throw away all their produce. And these are businesses, these Palestinians are already suffering economically. They're under a lot of different economic sanctions. So it's like, this is really done as a form of punishment. And also too, it's just the experience of being with sk- of being sprayed with skunk itself. It's like, it makes you not want to be towards other people because you're like, I stink. I don't want to be towards other people. And like to this, like, I'm still a little self-conscious because it's like, I've taken probably like 20 showers and I can't get this stuff out of my hair. 
Like the fact that this is seen as acceptable and okay to use on people is horrible. And it doesn't belong anywhere on a college campus. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you're, uh, you mentioned your family is part of the Christian community because that's, of course, a, a community that um, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem pretended didn't exist. I don't know if you saw this clip of this mm-hmm. woman claiming that there were no Christians in Gaza, no churches in Gaza. Of course, there were no churches because they um, bombed them. But um, yeah. that's, I can just, I mean, it must be infuriating the erasure as a Palestinian and then erasure as a Christian Palestinian. Because that you guys don't fit the narrative. Because exactly. this is all supposed to be about Muslims versus Jews. Yeah, they're making it. They're making this all about religion, and it's like, no, this is not all about religion. This is about occupation. That's what this is about. This is about occupation, and this is about genocide. Like it doesn't matter what religion the other person is. It should not be acceptable to kill thirty thousand people. No, uh, ma- no matter what their beliefs are. Like, that's that's just, that's horrifying to me. And the fact that this is being done with our tax dollars. Like, our ta- like people are struggling economically right now. I'm like, our taxes could go towards housing or healthcare. Why are they going towards bombing Palestinian children? Like, there's so much better things we could be doing as a country. People are asking if you're going to sue. So I have a fantastic attorney, several attorneys actually, um, and I am taking legal action. I cannot say what that legal action is at this time, but I am not the only one who is doing this. So just know that several students, including myself, are planning on taking legal action. Great. And speaking of Columbia, you have a very uh, interesting professor in the business department uh, at Columbia, Shai Davidai. What is his deal? Do you have any interactions with him? And if you do, I'm sorry if you do. <laughs> um. Let's just say he has a bit of a reputation around campus among students and faculty just for the rhetoric that he uses. It's really inflammatory. He's um, implied that students are affiliated with Hamas and um, apply it. He's also said stuff. Yeah, like that right there. He's called for the expulsion of students, the doxing of students. It's just very odd behavior for a professor. It's like, you're a grown man and you have two kids. Like, why are you acting this way towards students? It's really weird, to be honest. I would show, so, I would love to show you guys some of his self-pitying tweets, but he blocked me as we learned right before when we were setting up as Layla was a witness too. He blocked me because he's so, <laughs> he's so fragile. He blocked everyone. And he's like, I'm not going to stop. I will not stop. I refuse to stop. I'm defending myself. He's, he's like, I, even if I had his terrible politics, I feel like I would be so embarrassed by him and not want him to be associated yeah. with me. His colleagues are embarrassed by him. Like there are people at the business school who don't like him. And it's like so many people have reported this man because he hasn't just harassed me. He's made edits of students. He's made edits of students. Like edited their um, videos, you mean? Yeah, like like edited edited our videos, like edited videos of us. And like they are getting reposted by the state of Israel's Twitter account. I'm like, what is going on here? And then um, and he keeps calling for doxing and keeps calling for yeah. And then he's saying like, "Oh, I'm not going after individual students." He said that one time, and then he proceeded to go after individual students. It's just I've never seen a professor act like this towards students. Like it is fine if he has his political beliefs. I have no issue with that. You know, people people are entitled to their beliefs, but like as a professor using your 
personal social media to go after students and go after student organizations is very inappropriate. And yeah, I'm I'm truly surprised Columbia hasn't done anything sooner, but also like I'm not surprised at the same time just because it really is a hostile environment right now for students who are Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, or if you just support Palestine. Right. And speaking of the double standard that we're discussing, I think that this is an interesting question, rhetorical question that you asked on Twitter. So you tweeted out a screen grab of a tweet from Accuracy in Media, which said, Fox News covered our latest campaign to expose anti-Semitic students and faculty across the country. We'll be at six universities this week, including Harvard and Columbia. Join us and take action at Check Your Hate, which is a watchdog group. And then you write, Columbia University students were attacked with chemical weapons, and now the doxing truck is coming. How are we supposed to learn like this while Columbia does nothing? Yeah, maybe Fox News should cover that if they care about student safety. But tell us about this doxing truck. So this doxing truck has come before. It's hosted by an organization called Accuracy in Media. And the name is a misnomer. It's for it's funded largely by very well-off conservatives. This truck costs thousands of dollars to run each day. And basically it circles around campus with our faces and names on it. So having this thing go around campus, especially after many students were attacked with chemical weapons, I'm like, students, students were already hospitalized. Like, what will it take for Columbia to do something? Will it take one of us getting killed? Like, this is ridiculous. It's like people have reported the doxing truck. People reported it to the NYPD. People reported it to public safety. People have told admin. It's like people are fed up because we're like, we don't know what else to do. Like, I don't want to be here. Like, I, I'm a nerd. I don't want to be here, like, tweeting about a doxing truck and stuff. I'm like, I just want to go to class and, like, feed the pigeons and just, like, read my books and stuff. I don't want to be doing right. this. And it's really bizarre that. Columbia admin, what they're doing is they're prioritizing the wants and wishes of their donors over the well-being of students. Because what they're how they're responding to this is A, they're risking their reputation. People are going to know that this is not a safe place for their students to go. And also, too, they are risking dozens of lawsuits. I mean, students are furious. I have friends with autoimmune conditions. Their autoimmune conditions are worse and they're having to seek additional medical treatment after being exposed to this stuff. Like this stuff is really harmful. Yeah. And Columbia is just trying to act like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And the fact that we were just left to deal with it by ourselves. I'm like, Columbia has a $12 billion endowment. There is so much money and wealth and resources here. You're telling me that they couldn't have secured some of that special soap for us or that they could have offered us like some financial help. Like why are students having having to look up on Reddit how to deal with chemical warfare to deal with this. It's ridiculous. And it's also, it's infuriating too, because it's like, I, I, I'm very grateful to be at Columbia. Like I, I worked really, really hard to get here. I was really sick before I came here with, um, endometriosis. I was, I was so sick. So going here was like my dream. And I'm very grateful for, the faculty that I've met here, my friends, they're wonderful, but it's just the continuous negligence by Columbia administration. It's embarrassing. I'm like, these are grown adults with PhDs who are acting like this. It's ridiculous. What do you want Columbia to do? What I think Columbia needs to do is those students need to be expelled. 
Those students need to be expelled and banned from campus. Bare minimum is what they need to do. They need to provide students who are impacted. They need to provide us with financial compensation for the medical treatment that we're having to go through for the lo loss of clothes. They also, they need to take our proposals seriously and stop suppressing and silencing student activism and student voices. Columbia has been really dedicated to silencing students who stand up for Palestine, and that's simply unacceptable. If you're going to let students accept, um, express pro-Israel views, you need to let us express pro-Palestine views. I mean, I got in trouble with Columbia. They tried to get me in trouble, and they sent me a conduct notice for talking about my dad's family at a teach-in. And I asked them, I was like, what did I do wrong? And they couldn't point to anything in particular that what I did wrong, but they still sent me the notice. And they decided to do this at 1030 at night during finals. And it's like, how, how am I supposed to learn and get my degree when I am being sprayed with chemical weapons, when I'm getting conduct notices for talking about my dead family, when there is a, a doxing truck around campus? It's ridiculous. And it's also, too, what, what also I want to see with them is there needs to be ser a serious change in leadership. Someone that listens to the needs of students and doesn't shove shove them under the rug. I mean, to this day, like members of administration and stuff, just now they want to meet with us. Now they're realizing they did something wrong Not eight or nine days later. It's like, where was that energy from the start? And also only because Prem Thacker probably exactly. wrote a piece about it and asked them about it, yeah. They only did because the press. I mean, like admin, admin was literally over, overheard talking about students. Admin was overheard saying that, like, they didn't care that students would just transfer. Really? Yeah. Did you overhear that or someone you know overheard someone it? Someone I know overheard that, so I can't name, name names. Sure. But, right. yeah, like, they so clearly do not care about students. I mean, going to this place feels like attending a hedge fund that does education on the side is really what it feels like. It's like, so we should not, we should not have to beg our university and post photos of ourselves at the hospital for them to do something. They should be getting you the supplies, finding out what you have, what happened. Also, I forgot to mention this, but Columbia banned or dissembled or took apart Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace. Yeah, they did that because of pressure from donors. Donors were really, really upset about that. And instead of listening to students and listen because students are overwhelmingly pro-Palestine and that really scares donors. Right. They really do not like that. They really do not like seeing the protests on campus. So Columbia would rather prioritize what donors want instead of what students. It's want. just such a gross violation of freedom of speech also. It is. I mean, it's disgusting. It's so embarrassing. The fact that they have to resort to that, to, to shutting down organizations that are legal. Well, before you go, Layla, I wanted you to react to some words from Nancy Pelosi. I'm curious what you think. Trigger warning, I guess I should say. But here she okay. is being asked about people like you, protesters. I have a feeling for what feelings they have. But we have to think about what we're doing. And what we have to do is try to stop the suffering and gossip. This is women and children, people who don't have a place to go. So let's address that. Yes, but agree. for them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly connected to what he would like to see. Same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these 
Some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected uh, to Russia. And I say that having looked at this for a long time now, as you, you know. You think some of these protests are Russian plants? I don't think they're plants. I think some financing should be investigated. And I want to ask the, the uh, uh, FBI to investigate that. Layla, are you getting paid by the Russians? I just have to ask you as someone who's been calling for a ceasefire. I wish. Otherwise, I wouldn't have student loans. I wish I was being paid by the Russians. That, that would be nice. But I know <laughs> it's it, they they don't know how to deal. They don't. The our elected officials, frankly, are not prepared to deal with how angry the, um, the American public is right now about this. So they are scrambling and trying to find anything that they can to fit their narrative. And it's also, too, it's like there's all this talk about, oh, lobbying from Russia and spying from Russia and stuff. And it's like nobody ever talks about, say, APAC right. or Israel as a as a foreign a- agent. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about that. Right. Even though she she gets lots of APAC money and she's vowed to Israel that nothing would get in the way of their relationship. And now I want to be fair and balanced because I don't want to just show one side of Nancy Pelosi. She did accuse people of being paid by Russians, but she also made another really important suggestion. So let's take a look at this clip of her being um, uh, spoken to by a protester. Most of your constituents blocked the sergeant. Stop the genocide. Stop the Holocaust. Democrats want the ceasefire. The Democrats want the ceasefire. The Democrats want. So you, I should actually ask you: Are you getting Chinese financing? I am not getting Chinese financing. All right. I feel like I'm. I did what 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 Nancy wanted me to do. Yeah. <laughs> I've also been accused of getting funding from Qatar. I like their, you name a crazy rumor and they've said it about us. Somebody told me that um, feeding pigeons was anti-Semitic. Like you name it. Yeah. Because Layla's into feeding pigeons. I forgot to say that in the beginning. I love love pigeons. They're like my favorite animal. That's good. Someone has to love them. I love them. And um, yeah, somebody got mad at me for feeding the pigeons. They told me that um, Zionists had better bird food. And and they were like, why are you using the store brand bird food for the pigeons? I was like, guys, I'm in grad school. Oh like, so come on. Insane. That's so crazy. Well, Layla, thank you so much. Come back on. We'd love to hear from you again. <laughs> and best of luck with your recovery. Thank you so much for having I'm me. So sorry. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate this. Have a good rest of your night. Thank you, too. Bye, Layla. Now, I'm going to bring on to the show our next guest. And that is none other than Daniel Boguslaw, an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C. His interests include corporate corruption, congressional and White House investigations, American influence overseas and organized labor. Prior to joining The Intercept, Daniel worked at The New Republic, The American Prospect, and as a firefighter in the Pacific Northwest. So welcome, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So you, like Prem, are very prolific, and there's so many articles I could ask you about, but I want to ask you about your more, most recent one, which is called New York Times Puts Daily Episode on Ice Amid Internal Firestorm Over Hamas Sexual Violence article. As the Times faces scrutiny for its coverage of Israel's war on Gaza, it has capitulated to the pro-Israel media watchdog camera. So tell us about this story, and how did it even uh, evolve? How did you think of covering it? 
Sure. Well, you know, when the story that we were sort of investigating with our story first appeared, um, you know, I, I read it twice over just because it stood out to me as not only breaking with the sort of journalistic conventions that, that you know, I practice in my work, but also seemingly the journalistic conventions of the New York Times itself. I mean, just the, the juxtaposition of, you know, uh, talking about 150 sources interviewed with only, you know, less than a half dozen named sources in the piece, um, a lot of hedging language around central claims, um, and an overall sense of, you know, when I read any article, I try to think about how did they put this together? You know, how could I, what, what can I learn from this article? You know, where, where are the, the, the inconsistencies or the, you know, the holes that maybe they weren't able to fill in something? So, you know, from the very start reading it, I think I had this initial curiosity about how it came to be and how it was put together and, and actually sourced. And this article you're talking about, by the way, is called Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. A Times investigation uncovered new details showing a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in the attacks on Israel. Yeah, and, and so really this, this article sort of strove to be the sort of definitive piece on a sort of coordinated campaign of, of sexual violence um, on October 7th. But like I said, the piece came out and, and I was sort of, you know, read it twice and moved on to, to other projects that I was working on. And slowly it just kind of the, the criticism and, and the questions uh, started to pour out by just, you know, casual observers and, and readers who sort of seemed to have had a similar gut reaction to the piece um, as I did. And, you know, uh, the named sources were, were all hyper scrutinized and um, you know, the family of the, of the chief's source that the, the story is really framed around came out and basically refuted the Times characterization of her quotes um, and, and really pushed back and said, you know, this, uh, this, this really took what we were saying out of context. We really don't feel like there was any uh, conclusive evidence here that um, our family member was, was a victim of sexual violence. We don't want to speak for other instances, but, you know, our family being used as the sort of centerpiece for this is, is a mischaracterization. Um, two of the other named sources uh, were, were scrutinized for differing accounts um, in the evolution of, of their story. Perhaps more concerningly was that one of them was a former Israeli uh, uh, intelligence, so was a former IDF soldier serving in the uh, intelligence uh, division. And also, we should say that that the sources, they're not sources who claim that they were sexually assaulted. These are sources who claim to have witnessed it or to have heard about it, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Um, but, you know, just it, it's interesting the way the story evolved. I mean, oftentimes, uh, you know, you you work a coverage area and, and people come forward to you with tips. But uh, for me, I really felt like I wanted to understand what happened. And, and so did my colleague, Ryan Grimm, I think. And so we really just, you know, hit the phones and, you know, tried to reach out to people who, you know, also we assumed would, would have felt similarly given the, you know, just, just the feeling that you get reading this piece. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of great reporters and a lot of great uh, editors at the, at the New York Times who, who do their best to get the facts right. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, we were able to reach people inside the, inside the newsroom who, you know, said that there was a lot of internal uproar over this piece. Uh, so much so, in fact, that a episode of The Daily that, that was set to premiere after the piece came out was, you know, put on ice as they tried to sort of 
get more string on on to substantiate some of the claims made in the in the initial article. Um, so you know, really, we, we tried to show that um, you know, in, in many senses, I think they they thought that. Given their standing as the New York Times, given their their reputation as the paper of record, they could sort of do the definitive piece on this. There was a lot of uproar over uh, a failure by news organizations and NGOs to adequately investigate instances of sexual violence on October seventh. This was kind of intended to be a rebuttal of sorts um, to, to some of those questions. And you know, ultimately, despite the the seemingly uh, intensive resources that they poured into it. Um, they they weren't really able to achieve that objective. Right. And this, of course, it's worth noting that the UN is investigating and Israel is refusing to cooperate with them because they've written off the UN as anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think part of the response where people have have criticized uh, the sort of probing and question asking about, you know, what how how much of this uh, is sort of, you know, Hasbara and how much of this is, is sort of... Um, you know, word of mouth or, or, or things getting uh, uh, expanded on through through a telephone network. You know, part of the problem was that, you know, the Israeli government really has not offered a lot of um, evidence. And they've, they've explained that many of the victims on October 7th were, you know, buried very quickly. Um, and a lot of the testimony then is, is, is from, in some cases, like with the first responders from, from very unreliable sources. So um, I think that there were some very legitimate questions being asked. There was a legitimate push by the media to to say, okay, let's we should look into this. You know, this is this is important and, and it's critical to get this story right. But ultimately, a thorough and fact based analysis was it was not and has not really been offered yet. Your piece also discusses the pro-Israel bias at the New York Times more broadly. Could you talk about that? Sure. So we we also reported uh, sort of on how we we kind of got to this point, um, largely looking at one pro-Israel media watchdog group known as Camera that's been been around uh, for decades, and um, you know we kind of wanted to highlight the the quote unquote victories that Camera has highlighted themselves on their website of. Uh, the corrections and editor's notes that they've been able to achieve through a sort of constant barrage of emails and phone calls to editors. Um, and significantly, you know, we, we also showed that, you know, the executive editor of the New York Times father, uh, Leo Kahn, uh, was actually on the board of camera right up until the moment when, when uh, Joe Kahn sort of rose from, from reporter to editor. So you really see the way that, that these talking points and these framings um, are, are constantly lobbed at editors and reporters. And you can be a re- reporter or an editor who's critical to the claims that Kimmer is forwarding. But, um, you know, we tried to show the way that they are connected to large uh, figures in the conservative world, uh, which, which uh, you know, is useful for their end in terms of both the, the political connections as well as the financial connections, and also the success that they have. Uh, consistently achieving these corrections, you know, dozens, hundreds of corrections across across multiple outlets, um, but also a, a sort of soft power effect that uh, is represented not in the, the corrections they score or, or the editor's notes that they achieve, but in the overall outlook that reporters and editors have knowing that if they make any error, if they, if they make any, you know, wording mistake or, or any framing that is, is not to the liking of this organization, they are going to be harassed and hounded and made sure that they, they, uh, 
you know, and they're going to ensure that that they have to answer to you know an editor or or someone, even if it's a even if it's a very marginal correction, even if it's a very small thing. I think it has uh, instilled a culture of fear around uh, this coverage area. Right. One example of, I think, not necessarily a camera issue, you know, camera being that watchdog organization, but an example of their bias, I think, is um, they ran a headline touting the, quote, decline in deaths in Gaza. You and Ryan Grimm write in the article, just last week, the Times ran a headline touting the decline in deaths in Gaza, even as Israel continues to kill Palestinians in shocking numbers on a daily basis. Which is, I mean, it is kind of an insane headline, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine something like that happening in any other uh, conflict. And so the question is, why was that phrasing chosen? Right. Why was that wording chosen? Yeah, it's 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 almost like yeah, a parody. It's, it's bizarre. But you have a great, another great piece that totally relates to this. Um, and this piece was uh, very eye opening because you got to get to see how the sausage is made not about the New York Times, but about CNN. And this piece is called CNN Runs Gaza Coverage, Past Jerusalem Team Operating Under Shadow of IDF Censor. And then you write, the Jerusalem Bureau has long reviewed all CNN stories relating to Israel and Palestine. Now it's helping shape the network's coverage of the war. So can you talk about that story and what you discovered? Sure. So this is sort of one other element um, that, again, I think really gets to this you know, I was, I've talked to a lot of people about this reporting. And one thing I try to impress or one thing that I've really learned through the course of it is that um, I think people often imagine that, uh, you know, story that, that the way censorship happens internally with new news organizations that is that stories are outright killed that, you know, you have a story about, um, you know, death toll, or you have a story about a, a, a specific significant instance of of outrageous uh punitive violence and that story just gets you know axed and never appears um you know i think what the cnn story really showed is the way that uh, again there's a sort of soft power coercive element that oftentimes disincent disincentivizes reporters or editors from from even pursuing these stories in the first place and uh at cnn we were able to show that uh they have internal directives that run um all coverage pertaining to Israel and Palestine through uh, editors at the Jerusalem Bureau or when they're asleep, uh, a handful of, of uh, other editors uh, who, who kind of fill in um, when Tel Aviv is dark. Um, but the great irony of this is, of course, that to be a, a foreign reporter, to have a reporter visa um, or, or obtain a press pass in Israel, you have to sign a document saying that you'll abide by the uh, the the rules and and orders of the Israeli military censor, um, and you know unlike in, in the United States, uh, the, the military censor can legitimately strike through lines of reporting. They can they can block entire articles from coming out. And indeed, every year um, they often do record censoring. You know, usually thousands of uh, news reports. So, you know, CNN said this is to ensure, you know, accuracy in a regional bureau that's closer to the action. But, you know, really, they're, they're subjecting their reporter, uh, their reports and the reporting to uh, a foreign government's censor uh, um, and also sending a signal to their reporters that that, you know, the things that the censors say, say are off limit are going to be off limits from the start um, for you to even try to report. on. Right. Yeah, I, I thought that some of this is actually worth quoting because because you quote certain emails. So let's see. You write, 
Early in the war on October 26, CNN's New Standards and Practices Division sent an email to staff outlining how they should write about the war. Quote, Hamas controls the government in Gaza, and we should describe the Ministry of Health as Hamas-controlled whenever we are referring to casualty statistics or other claims related to the present conflict. If the underlying statistics have been derived from the Ministry of Health in Gaza, we should note that fact and that this part of the ministry is Hamas-controlled, even if the statistics are released by the West Bank part of the ministry or elsewhere. End quote. The email goes on to acknowledge CNN's responsibility to cover the human cost of the war, but touches that responsibility in the need to cover the broader current geopolitical and historical context of the story while continuing to remind our audience of the immediate cause of this current conflict, namely the Hamas attack and mass murder and kidnap of Israeli civilians. So it's interesting. They don't say Likud-controlled health ministry when it's an Israeli statistic, I assume. Also, the responsibility, you could obviously decide that, as Gideon Levy said, the Israeli journalist, that you can't have 2 million people living in a concentration camp without paying a price, i.e. October 7th was not just caused by Hamas acting out of the blue. I just I just wanted to touch on, on, on one, one last piece of that, yeah. which is that uh, this, this, this part of the directive that, that you read out about couching reporting about civilian deaths in the context of the October 7th event, directly that language almost directly mirrors a very similar memo that was sent out at the onset uh, of the war in Afghanistan, uh, right. where CNN's then chairman sent out a memo telling reporters that no matter the civilian carnage they were seeing across Afghanistan, it was critical to remind viewers that what they were seeing was a direct result of the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Right. So again, you, you, you are shown not just uh, the the company line uh, on on Israel Palestine, but in fact an entire mechanism for shaping news um, and drumming up war support by trying to over and over and over again tie any civilian quote unquote collateral damage to a, an initial recognition of violence occurring against um, a a allied country or or you know, the, the the homeland. Right, you're justifying it. You're justifying Israel's response because it's a response to Hamas, or you're justifying America's response because it's a response to 9-11. So it's October 7th or 9-11. You also, if I can just go back because I thought this was so revealing, you have some more things that you revealed in this excellent article, which we'll link to. Okay, so... uh, The email further instructed reporters and editors to make it clear to our audiences whether either or both sides have provided verifiable evidence to support their claims. In a separate directive dated November 2nd, Senior Director of News Standards and Practices David Lindsay cautioned reporters from relaying statements from Hamas. As the Israel-Gaza war continues, Hamas representatives are engaging in inflammatory rhetoric and propaganda. Most of it has been said many times before and is not newsworthy. We should be careful not to give it a platform. So that's fascinating. What about the rhetoric from Israel saying we're going to do Amalek on them, which is kill every man, child, suckling uh, livestock member? What about Israel saying that they're going to shut off all the water and all the electricity? Is that not insightful language, inflammatory language? Well, I think like, you know, it's, interesting to to think about like the centralization of of Hamas leadership right and, and the notion that like I think what they're largely describing is is you know statements from a uh, you know 
very official spokesperson, whereas, you know, Israel is actually, it's, it's interesting to, to, to think about that question, given the fact that you have these different factions, you have ministers who are contradicting the prime minister or contradicting other ministers. Um, and, you know, in that directive, you know, CNN made clear that they're also attributing statements um, to, to IDF officials or to, to the IDF in, in certain cases. You know, the other thing that that piece revealed was that on the onset of the war, they actually hired a former IDF soldier from the spokesperson's unit um, okay. to, to work on, on Israel coverage. Imagine if they did that with someone from Hamas. Right. Like uh, they hired someone who had worked for Hamas to do Palestine coverage. But, but I think, um, you know, the other question here is just the speed, right? I mean, you have, you have a guerrilla, effectively a guerrilla organization that, that's, um, right. you know, under, under bombardment with, with some leadership, you know, in Qatar and, and other places, but trying to coordinate and understand what's happening on the ground there. Um, and then you have a, you know, Western-backed military with a, with a uh, more secure and, and highly functioning um, press operation. And so you also just get a, uh, an obvious difference in, in, in speed there um, and, and uh, you know, volume. Uh, and when you have a former IDF spokesperson unit uh, employee, that speed uh, certainly increases as well. But yeah, and also just like there, there's the problem of as they kill more and more reporters in Gaza, it's like there's just less and less, there's less and less news that's, that's coming out of there. And so you can print uh, that this report came from, from the IDF. You can, you can I- explain that, but if that's kind of all you got, then that qualifier doesn't, doesn't uh, count for much. Right. And of course, it bears repeating that this is not accidental in the line of fire death from reporters like Israel knows where the journalists live and they kill them in their homes with their families. Yes. And, and they and target there, them. There are multiple investigations from, from widely respected uh, NGOs that, that, that suggest strongly and, and pro- provide a lot of evidence um, um, for that claim. Right. And here's some more ways that CNN tailors its, its coverage. So you found out, you also cover this. You say, according to an email reviewed by The Intercept, CNN expanded its review team over the summer as the highly controversial overhaul of Israel's judicial system moves through Israel's parliament to include a handful of editors outside of Israel in an effort to streamline the process, the streamline the process of getting review from Israel of the coverage. In a July email to CNN staff, Jerusalem Bureau Chief Richard Green wrote that the policy exists, quote, because everything we write or broadcast about Israel or the Palestinians is scrutinized by partisans on all sides. The Jerusalem Bureau aims to be a safety net so we don't use imprecise language or words that may sound impartial, but can have coded meanings here, end quote. But because the protocol would slow down the publication process, Green wrote, quote, we have created, parentheses, wait for it, dot, 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 and parentheses, the Jerusalem second eyes alias, end quote. The CNN spokesperson told The Intercept that Jerusalem's second eyes, quote, was created to make this process as swift as possible, as well as bring more expert eyes to staff it across the day, particularly when Jerusalem is dark, end quote. The spokesperson did not respond to a question about whether CNN has a similar review process in place for other coverage areas or like, for instance, for Palestinians. The CNN staff member described how the policy works in practice, quote, war crime and genocide are taboo words, the person said. Israeli bombings in Gaza will be reported as blasts attributed to nobody until the Israeli military weighs in to either accept or deny responsibility. 
Quotes and information provided by Israeli army and government officials tend to be approved quickly, while those from Palestinians tend to be heavily scrutinized and slowly processed. That was fascinating. Yeah, and and again, like, I think, you know, and after this piece published, I, I spoke with some other people inside CNN, and like, really what the overwhelming message they had was just that, you know, this process just slows down accurate reporting. It, it slows down breaking news and it just creates a system where the IDF's official statements are, are just prioritized. And that's just, that's been the, the net effect of these internal protocols. Um, and you know, it's, it, again, it's sort of like, there's obviously this, this fear, there's obviously some of the, you know, these guidances that you read that are explicit. But um, in many cases, I think it's just the, it's the number of people who have to touch a piece. And each one of those people is gonna have their own anxieties about getting an angry phone call, either from, you know, okay. camera or from the official IDF military sensor. And the more people you put on it, and the more, the more second eyes you have, you know, the, the, the slower it's going to be and the, the more priority the Israeli military is going to have. So you have a related piece that I wanted to uh, ask you about. This one is called Exclusive Israeli Military Censor Bans Reporting on These Eight Subjects. The highly unusual English language order for the Gaza war breaks from the secretive and informal way IDF censorship normally works. So tell us about how this censorship normally works, and then we'll get into the actual taboo areas, and we can even read them off of the sheet that they provided. Yeah, well, you know, talking to a lot of reporters who have lived and worked in, in Israel, both Israeli citizens and, and foreign reporters, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not like, for the most part, it, it's not like the Israeli military censor is, is, you know, running, you know, you send it off every article, you send it off to them, they're running strike throughs with red pen. Uh, although. To be clear, sometimes they do do that, but far more common is a self-censorship of reporters who've been working in the country for a long time. And, you know, I heard several anecdotes basically of, of the military censor just getting on the phone with an editor or, or, or you know, with, with a desk editor and basically just screaming at them and, you know, enculturating a, a general disposition that is resistant to touching any of those subjects or fighting for a piece that maybe falls around the line of a area that people know is, is controversial or could be banned. But, you know, you ask yourself, you know, you're a, you're a decade, two decades long reporter, you know, you, you know where those lines are. Are you going to fight? Are you going to fight every time? Are you going to get the Israeli military censor involved and trying to, you know, harass you and, and get you booted or keep your job? And, you know, this, this really stood out as this sort of new explicit order um, that was in English, which, which suggested, um, that uh, you know, it 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 was having distribution beyond its its normal uh, the, the normal domestic Israeli press, um, and was you know really laying out explicitly the conditions for uh, reporting on 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 the current conflict. Sorry, I was muted. You include I I was speechless. It takes <laughs> my breath away. But you actually included these orders. So let's take a look at that. So here is the document, Operation. Swords of Iron, Israeli Chief Censor Directive to the Media. In light of the current security situation and the intensive media coverage, we wish to encourage you to submit to the censorship all materials dealing with the article 
dealing with the activities of the Israeli Defense Forces, IDF, and the Israeli Security Forces prior to their broadcast. Below is a breakdown of topics that are not allowed for broadcasting and should be submitted by the Israeli censor prior to their publication. One, hostages, personal details, any posts that they held, medical situation, Israeli negotiation positions, and any details concerning the negotiation for their release. Two, operational details, order of battle of the security forces and their location assembly areas, troop movements, operational plans, and covert operation. It is forbidden to report vulnerabilities in the Israeli defense abilities, including the deployment, location, and capabilities of the Iron Dome system and other air and missile defense systems. It is also forbidden to broadcast images and or videos that can identify the forces, their composition, and scope. Three, intelligence. Any intelligence concerning the intentions and capabilities of the enemy. Four, weapon systems. Detailed of weapon systems in IDF use, IDF equipment that fell into the hands of the enemy, even if your report is based on enemy news. Five, rocket attacks. It is forbidden to report rocket strikes that struck strategic infrastructure targets, such as power plants, gas, and water infrastructure, transportation depots, military and defense bases, factories, and other sensitive areas. Cyber attacks. It is forbidden to report attacks against security, federal, and national institution. Furthermore, it is forbidden to report Israeli cyber attacks against the enemy. Seven, visit by senior officials. During the course of their visit in the combat zone, it is forbidden to report the presence of senior officials such as the prime minister, the minister of defense, the chief of staff, ministers, members of Knesset, and other senior officials. Eight, security cabinet. Any reports concerning details and information from the cabinet meeting must be submitted to Israeli censor prior to their broadcast. So, thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, you can, <laughs> that really covers most of what's happening. Um, so, you know, th- these are not things that are going to necessarily be fully banned, but there are things that, that the IDF wants to be able to, you know, tightly control. And again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really fascinating thinking about like the you know, security cabinet, for example, where, you know, you have a somewhat motley assemblage there with different perspectives and different ideas uh, about the exact level of escalation uh, and tactics to be used. And um, so you can see how, you know, any, you know, or or you think about hostages, the health of the hostages, the conditions of the hostages, what are their backgrounds? What, what, what information do, do their families have that they want to share with the Israeli public because of the way that they feel they're being silenced? You know, I think there was footage I saw of, a number of hostage families, you know, breaking into the parliamentary body yeah. to protest the current handling of the war. So you can really see how all these subjects, um, you know, under Israeli law, are subject to review and censorship by the military. In the way that, um, you know, that cycle, uh, you know, we get a glimpse into a cycle that's literally uh, occurred and been and, and a, a law that's been on the books since 1948. Um, in the way that that can can remake an entire society's uh, perspective um, based you know, on what types of information they do and do not have access to. So crazy. And there's no uproar about this because people want access. You mean there's no uproar from from uh, American reporters or foreign reporters to the to the order? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's also like, I mean, it's, you know, this is a point I've also tried to make, which is that you can imagine there's always a, you know, cost-benefit analysis to like how much you hold your cards in a, in a you know in an authoritarian country you know the right. uh, um, uh, you know the journalist uh, who's who's currently you know imprisoned in Russia you know uh, who's recently imprisoned um, you know you can imagine in in 
uh, authoritarian countries, you know, as, as a Western reporter, you're constantly kind of having to weigh how far you're willing to push things against the official line and how you couch information. But, you know, you, you, you would also imagine that there'd be more discussion in the U.S. press about those challenges um, were it a, a non-allied country. And it's very uh, unprecedented for, for Americans to be operating in, in, a, in a country like this that has such a b- bizarre and unique relationship with the United States, where at once it is you know, celebrated as an ally while simultaneously often di- acting directly against uh, U.S. foreign policy interests. So I think I think it's 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 a hard balancing act, but I also think there there are some great reporters who you can see push that balance and and have created innovative ways. You know, I think nine seven two has created some really innovative ways to try to report on the censor. You know, they publish uh, every year. They basically file a Freedom of Information Act trying to publish information about about uh, the the scope of censorship. So there's definitely some room for pushback, but I think yeah, you know it it's going to alienate your, your sourcing, especially within the IDF and Israeli government. And it just is something that every journalist should be talking about this so that Americans know when they're, or any country knows, citizens of any country knows that when they're reading their coverage of Israel, it's already by default censored by Israel. I think that's another important aspect of it. Two more things I want to ask you about. One is kind of shifting gears, but it's totally relevant to what we're talking about. You have another piece called As U.S.-Funded Wars Rage in Israel and Ukraine, Pentagon Watchdog Warns of Military Failures While Congress Weighs Sending More Aid to Both Countries, a New Inspector General Report Details Oversight Issues and Waste Within the U.S. Military. So what is some of the waste that stands out and, and other revelations from this report? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.